Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. The Configure It Done podcast is a place where successful thought leaders in the SAP space come to share their leadership styles, their tips, and their unique stories on how to run successful large-scale SAP programs. Listen to the podcast to learn from their successes, their failures, their career stories, and their inspirations. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Welcome, welcome to um, season three of the uh, Configure It Done um, podcast. This is episode one. We're delighted to have Cameron uh, with us today. And uh, I brought my colleague along, Rich, as well. And Rich, just first of all, can you tell the audience who you are, introduce yourself? I know it's the first time you've been on the, on the podcast. Yeah. So my name is Richard Shaw. I've been with Precision now for two years. Came from the UK where I worked in the SAP market across Europe and the US. And I had the privilege to join Precision just prior to lockdown in, in 2019. So it's a little bit about myself. Are you getting on? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's a very different market, that's for sure. There we go. All right, good stuff. And then, um, Rich, what I'm going to ask you to do is introduce your guest. I know you've um, been talking with Cameron quite a while now, and um, we're going to do a, a quick fire question round. This has been very successful in season two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Cameron, what we're going to do is just set the timer for three minutes. Rich is going to fire some questions at you, and uh, <laughs> if you can answer them as quickly as possible, just so. You can uh, introduce yourself to the audience so Got it. to know you a bit better. All right. Over to you, Rich. Perfect. So, what's your full name? Cameron William Berkman. And what's your nickname? Oh, what God. I like to call you? Uh, Cam, usually, but just don't call me late for dinner, you know. <laughs> Classic dad joke. And whereabouts are you from? Uh, originally born in Brisbane, moved to Sydney in 1990, now living in God's country on Sydney's northern beaches. Perfect. And how long have you been here? Well, I guess you've been in your life, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny yes. question. Yeah, that's true. How long have I been aware? <laughs> yeah. And where are you working at the moment? I currently work for EY uh, in the uh, Asia-Pacific Consulting Division, running the SAP go-to-market for Asia-Pacific. Amazing. And what's the best job you say you've ever had? Boy, best job I've ever had. Uh, that's a good question. Probably uh, as a program director for uh, St. George Bank, where... We ran a project that finished on time and on budget with heaps of support and is still in place today after 15 years. The stuff we built still exists, so that's kind of a nice legacy to leave. And what about your worst job? Um, possibly the one that I've got now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the, in the process of transitioning out. You know, when, you, when you're in a startup mode trying to build a new business from scratch, which is effectively what we're doing with our SAP business after selling our consulting team 10 years ago um, it's a lot of heavy lifting a lot of banging heads against walls and I've taken the team to a certain point it's now time for me to move on to something else but yeah. it's, it's been a little bit frustrating because you know growing up is hard for a, an organisation to do I agree what about sport are you a sport? sport? yes a bit of life saving surf life saving so I compete in the uh, masters uh, division um Specialty is probably the swim, the ocean swim, um, but I do uh, paddle a ski, paddle a board. I try not to run, <laughs> but he's not really suited to running anymore. <laughs> you live in a good part of the world either. to do that. Exactly right, yeah. And um, what about your favourite beer? Beer or wine, man? Uh, been very focused on craft beer, probably too much in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, 
And there's so much choice. I like a really uh, malty, sort of sweet, not too bitter beer. So some of the stouts that come out, there's a peanut butter stout that is just crazy good. Um, you can only drink one or two because they're very heavy and they're very sweet. Um, but the uh, one that I've really liked recently is uh, Nomad Supersonic Rod, which is a um, double dry hopped, very fruity, heavy IPA. Yeah, very different from myself. I'm a Heineken or a Carling man. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with a good crisp lager when you're thirsty. Simple. It's all good. <laughs> and what about, uh, what about food? What's your favorite meal? Uh, seafood's good. Um, fresh oysters, um, mm-hmm. shucked on the day, uh, fresh prawns, some nicely grilled barramundi. What about your leadership style? How would you describe it in one word? Um, I uh, relaxed is probably the, the, the right word to do it. I tend to have a lot of trust in people, and we'll, I know we're going to talk about that a bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, building a, a sense where you know, we spend a lot of time at work. Yeah. It shouldn't just be work. You need to get on with the people that you're with. So, um, you know, we spend a lot of time at work and uh, it can't all be about work. So being able to have fun with the people that you're with, which means, you know, you need to be able to build that culture of, of uh, people who like each other and respect each other and get on with the job. So I try and have a pretty relaxed style. What about, are you into films, music? Obviously you play guitar, so. Yes. Are you into, the, into rock? Uh, oh, my my taste is pretty wide and eclectic, yeah. <clears throat> and if you look at some of the playlists of the covers that we play, it's everything from you know Sade to um, ah, Lenny Kravitz, Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, it's all over the shop. I'm a big James Bond fan. Can't wait for the next James Bond film I'll to come be out on Thursday. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. good work. Excited. Yeah. We're uh, we're going to have so a... long. Yes. It was meant to come out, was it the November of the first? Last month, November, delayed, yeah. delayed, delayed, delayed. There's rumours you're the next Bond, Rich. Uh, I can see that. I've done two Norwegians to be the next Bond. <laughs> uh, kind of a Welsh Bond. <laughs> that could work. Um, what about holidays? We had a quick chat before, but where's your favourite place to go? Um, I, uh, I really like Italy. And we spent some some fantastic time on the west coast of Italy, around the Amalfi yeah. Coast. That was probably one of our favourite holidays. I send you some uh, holiday destinations in Wales. Oh uh, yes, I'd love to visit next Wales. Time you go. Yeah, exactly. And a bucket list, anyway. Anything you want to do? I was asked the same question the other day, and I couldn't answer. Yeah, it. yeah. Well, so I said go to Japan. I'd like to go skiing in Japan. Yeah, that's not a bad one. I think it, the whole concept of a bucket list is like, why wait? Let's let's yeah. do it now. You know. So there's, I keep trying to, I you know, I wanted to play in front of a live audience, good, done that. You know? yeah. um, would love to go snowboarding in Japan. That'd be, yeah, that'd be yeah. fun. Um, would love to ride a motorcycle across the United States. So. Also be cool. Favourite city? I really like Tokyo. Yeah. So I had, had opportunity to go there a few times before <clears throat> the whole pandemic started. And uh, it's a great city. It's really... You know, eclectic yeah, and been. great food. Really yeah, mm. I've never been as well, but everyone keeps saying how good yeah. that place mm. is. So, yeah, love the food. People yeah. seem so nice. Yeah. The country looks beautiful. It's just got so much to offer. Well, the other thing I like about Tokyo is um, you know, I'm relatively tall and I don't look at all Japanese and I've never felt more alien in a place. You, know, you travel through Europe, you kind of figure things out, but I remember standing in front of a subway sign in Tokyo going... I have no idea where I am or how to get to where I need to go and this doesn't make any sense, could not figure it out. That's kind of my test for travelling anywhere is being able to use the public transport system. Tokyo completely stumped me. So I I was such an alien there. So that was good. It was nice and refreshing to be somewhere very different like that. Yeah, for sure. I will go one day. And um, if you weren't an SEP, where do you think you'd be? 
Oh, managing a rock band, uh, tour manager, something like that. <laughs> Teaching people how to sail. Oh, there's right. lots of lots of fun things to do. Yeah. And um, a fun fact about yourself. Uh, I've just bought a farm. Really? Yeah, down near Berry. We're going to set it up as a wedding venue and possibly a craft brewery okay. years into the future. But yeah, it's it's, it's going to be really fun. It's opened up a whole new dimension of what might our future look like instead of just grinding away for a while in Sydney. I love Berry. It's, it's a great spot. A friend of ours Barry got Pruden. married um, down there. They've yep. got that famous donut. Um, ah yes, down yes, there. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, great spot, Berry. Really good. All right, brilliant. Well, um, thanks, Rich, for doing the. Uh, fun fact in about uh, Cameron there. I want to dive into your career now, um, Cameron. First of all, before we do that, can you tell us um, about how you got into SAP initially? Yeah, I was working for IBM and realised that I needed a change. <clears throat> and at the time, uh, Bruce McKinnon and Scott Russell were both working there. Scott's now the global head of customer success for SAP, and Bruce is now the head of SAP over at Accenture. Yeah, we've had him on the podcast, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was working, used to work with Bruce with both of them at. at um, at IBM and so when I was looking for a change they'd both left reached out to Bruce and he said well why don't you come and, and work for us as a client partner selling SAP services and at that time in my career I'd been working for IBM doing a sell and deliver role and felt I needed more hardcore sales experience and so I thought here's an opportunity to go and work for a, you know in a pure sales role for SAP uh, and I certainly got my wish because being a client partner for SAP was probably the hardest job I've ever had. Um, it's uh, it's a really difficult role to play, and I learned I learned a lot. Yeah, but it was definitely the school of hard knocks. Mm -hmm. Lots of um, lots of very frustrating and stressful times there, but some good work too. You know, for some big clients. That's where I met Stephen Wales. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another another podcast guest as yes. well. It's a very small <laughs> ecosystem, isn't it? That's the, right. The SAP yep. space. Um, like, I've asked the same question to Bruce. I asked the same question to Steve as well about you know what keeps them mm. in the in the SAP domain. Uh, I know Bruce now is leading a team of five hundred, mm. um, for instance. So um, yeah, it's just it's incredible. Um, but what what keeps you in the in the SAP domain? I guess um, if I'm blunt, it's the biggest game in town. So there is always going to be SAP work. Um, they obviously 80% of the world's transactions touch an SAP system at some point. And so uh, having had you know, 11, 12 years experience in SAP, it makes sense for me to continue my career in that space because it's a great source of, of satisfaction. The other part of it, of course, is the, the fact that it's got real potential to make a difference. So you can look at the uh, move to S4 HANA in two ways. One is a cynical way for a software company to make more money. The other is actually as a genuine attempt to rewrite the software in a way that's going to make a significant difference. And so um, having been at SAP, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, I get it, you know, in terms of, yeah, this can actually make a massive change for a lot of companies. Mm. Um, the ability to have it all in memory, to have everything in one database, to have a single... Um, Universal Journal Record. That's you know when you dig into what S4 is, it's actually really amazing. It does what it says on the tin, and so <clears throat> being a bit of an evangelist and trying to bring that to my clients and showing them this is what your business could look like. You know this is how things could work for you. The hardest part is overcoming that disbelief of no, that'll never work for me. You know so mm. so there's huge potential there. Um, and in terms of my personal mission uh, to try and build a better world, a better working world. Um, then you know, there's there's a great tool there, so I want to pick it up and use it. Sure, sure. And I suppose being part of that better world, like you said, um, I put this question to Bruce, and 
it was about um, encouraging new talent in the in the mm. market. So mm. in Australia, we're we're really struggling to encourage you know, new talent to come mm. through. Like we said, it's a small ecosystem. It's the same names that have been in the, the SAP game for for years. Um, in your opinion, Cameron, how do we encourage new talent to come through, and and how do we keep SAP relevant in the mm. in the market today? Because it has been around for a long, long time. Yeah, I think uh, SAP is doing good a good job at refreshing their, or obviously refreshing their underlying technology, reinventing themselves into a cloud company, mm. <clears throat> uh, rebuilding the software from the ground up. So I think the attraction for, for um, young entrants to the market is, um, you know, the skills that you learn at university can be very applicable in this new world. So um, once SAP gets off, you know, gets unhooked from its drug of on-premise software and perpetual maintenance and more into the subscription revenue model, suddenly SAP is going to find we need to actually make sure our customers are satisfied and that's going to take a whole different mindset. So mm. the new crop of talent coming through out of our universities um, and across industry coming in from outside should be looking at that as an opportunity to say, all right, we need to not only keep make this customer happy but keep them happy. Mm. And so that's a very different uh, model from the old subscription and, and maintenance game that they've been playing. Um, the potential to um, use low-code, no-code tools to be able to solve business problems using business technology platform, etc., opens up a huge plethora of opportunities for people from uh, implementing core, configuring, um, change management, training, data migration. Uh, you know, if you if you think about the fact that something like four and a half thousand customers in Asia Pacific have yet to move. That's four and a half thousand really big multi-year programs that have yet to run. There's tons of work, um, and every one of those needs configuration, thinking about the operating model, data migration, training, change management. You know, the world is massive from that point of view. So, there's no shortage of, of work to do, and it's good work that will hopefully build a better working world. You mentioned there four and a half thousand um, different programs there, but thinking about one specific program and, and your you know methodology, what would you define as a, a successful SAP program? We, um, we had the pleasure of working with a, an Australian company that provides cancer and heart care, and their purpose was to save a million years of life. It's sometimes hard for me to tell these stories without getting a lump in my throat, right? Because the, the things that they were doing is just miraculous, helping people um, get to the point where they can spend their, their last days with their loved ones in, in comfort rather than in pain and so on. So they had uh, a situation where they wanted to expand and grow their um, EBITDA five times over the next, sorry, double their EBITDA over five years. But their current engine, which was a not, not an SAP package, was basically spitting smoke and flames and was about to explode at any minute. And the, the symptom of this was their um, finance team had massive attrition. They were losing people every month because the work was too hard, systems didn't talk to each other, they were back till midnight for two weeks after month end to try and get the books closed and so on. Clearly, this is not functional. And so when the CEO looked at it and said, come on, we're going to double the business, everyone said, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not going to do that. So you know, we had a, an opportunity to exercise what I think is the right way to approach it, which is, okay, firstly, let's sort out your operating model and the way you do things and get your business ready for the software. And fortunately, they allowed us to do that. Mm -hmm. We handed them a new operating model. We went through a fit gap process. We got them down to seven RICEFs in the end, which is just a ridiculously low number, which meant that they were, which meant that they were very um, 
standard in the way that they were adopting the software and not adapting it for their needs. Mm -hmm. So um, we did it the right way, what I consider to be the right way, get the business ready for the software, rebuild the operating model, choose the right software, and then we put them straight onto a nice clean copy of S4. Um, All of it was on time, on budget, um, and realised tremendous benefits for them. Um, In in odd areas, um, they had no uh, approval to purchase system they had an approval to pay system Mm -hmm. so all of their clinics 84 clinics were out there buying stuff no one had any idea what it was or who it was from they had no centralized way to to organize procurement they had 84 different contracts with the same uniform supplier you know so i I look at things like this i get frustrated you know i think this is this is crazy right Mm -hmm. you've got to you've got to do better than this so a lot of it was justified purely on being able to centralise all that purchasing in one place and then having a, you know, what, what we would normally consider to be a classic um, purchase acquisition, purchase order, um, goods receipt note, invoice, four-way match, done. They didn't have any of that. So, you know, I remember we submitted one of our bills to them. They've gone, we didn't know this was coming. We're going to have to go to the bank and borrow some money to pay you because we had no idea this was coming. That's how bad their systems were. So being able to help them... Um, sort all that out, move into what I would call the 20th century and then be able to expand their business. They've now gone on this massive um, expansion plan. They've actually relocated their headquarters to the US. They've achieved their aim of doubling their EBITDA in five years and we enabled that. So that was very cool. It was very cool to be able to to do that. That is success. So Cameron, what are the top three imperatives you took within your team when you were delivering the project? Yeah, I think that's... um, that's a really good question, and it's. I was thinking about this question as I came in today. Uh, it's a bit like a, you know, whenever we do a project, particularly as a professional services organisation, it's a little bit like I don't know, Big Brother or something like that. We grab a bunch of random people and throw them in a room, and hopefully you get a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And so, very rarely do we handpick teams, do we interview people. It's more like who's available, who's got the right skills, right go. And so, as a project leader, your first job is to set the culture, build the team, create the environment, you know, which many um, sort of non-professional services companies like, like you, know, you guys, yeah. you have a set culture here. It's, it doesn't, doesn't change very much. You've got new people who come in and out. But every time we run a project, it's, it's starting from scratch every yeah. time. So I thought about three things. One is um, thinking about all the really good teams that I've been part of. One, one thing that I think is really valuable, it's going to sound weird, is intimidation. If I feel like I'm working with people smarter than me that I'm a bit scared of, that's great. You know, so I had this experience recently on one of my projects where there was a, a um, lady um, in Melbourne who was same rank as me, and we both had you know sort of a two in a box kind of model, and she was amazing. She frightened the life out of me because I thought <laughs> she's so much better at this than I am. But that was great because it kept me on my toes, yeah. um, and she was really lovely, and we just got on so well. But Having that little bit of intimidation, I think you don't want to be the smartest guy in the room with your team, right? Yeah, that's interesting you say that. When we had um, Alex Aiken on the first episode of season one, that was the first thing he said as mm. well. He said if he's the smartest guy in the room, that project's in trouble. Yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very good point. Yeah, so I, I think that's really important. Steve Bingham says the same thing. Our, our APAC leader for technology, he's, I asked him once, you know, I actually started our careers together uh, back at PreWC, and he's rocketed to tremendous heights and I haven't, which doesn't necessarily mean I'm a failure, by the way. <laughs> so I said to Steve, what, what's the secret to your success? And he said, I always hire people smarter than me. And so I think that's really important to have that, that sense of there are some really brainy people here and, mm-hmm. and being a little bit intimidated by that, which is good. The second 
second thing is um, what I would call the soft, hard stuff. So a team of people that knows, okay, we're a team. We have to do things that make us feel like a team, even if it feels a bit hokey sometimes. So let's do Friday afternoon drinks. Let's do a quiz night. Let's do... So it's that conscious, consciously being fun and caring about each other. And again, when you're just chucking people in a room and getting a project going from day one, it's it takes conscious effort to do that. You can't just expect someone to stand up and go, oh, why don't I organise something fun? You actually have to plan it. And so... In the first couple of weeks, it feels a bit kind of weird and a bit kind of forced, but then you get into it, right? So I think it's really important that you have people who uh, have, the, have the emotional intelligence to recognise we're going to need to do this. You know, we have to consciously care about each other and consciously have some fun because, as I said before, you know, majority of our waking hours are work hours. Mm-hmm. If you can't enjoy what you do, it's not going to be very good. So we had a situation on a project recently where... Um, um, program manager, the person that I was working for, collapsed at work on client site and had to be taken to hospital. Turned out to be uh, stress and exercising too hard and, and not eating right and all that sort of stuff. But it really put a big well-being theme into the team saying, hang on a sec, we're not, something's wrong. You know, if people on this team are falling over, <laughs> we're not doing something right. So we made sure that everybody had access to well-being resources. We made sure they knew that actually your health is more important than delivering this project. And that actually brought us together. Um, and that, that program manager came back and she was fantastic and really appreciated. Actually went on a 12-week wellness program and then came back and gave us a presentation about all the stuff she learned. So it was really, really important. And I think the third thing is um, is what I would call the upward spiral. So I'm watching Ted Lasso at the moment. And so you know, being from Wales, uh, there's some funny jokes about Wales and Welsh independence recently, which is good. Um, yeah, but this this... I think there's going to be management textbooks written about Ted Lasso and the Lasso effect. But his primary aim is a couple of things. One is self-belief. You know, we're a team and we can do this. And fairly basic stuff around play to your strengths, but also play to everybody else's strengths, which kind of means, A, you need to know you, and B, you need to know what everybody else is good at. So when do I make the pass? When do I do it myself? You know, when can I rely on you to do something? When should I step back and be selfless and let you have it? You know? Um, and you know the, the episode I watched last night. Uh, one of the players, Jamie Tart, he's a bit uh, thorny. They use a different word in the show, but that that um, that hard man, that that ability to be really really annoying, is actually one of his strengths. And so they unleashed it at the right point, won the game. So you know, yes, it's fictional and so on, but mm-hmm. that ability to know what everybody's strengths are and to rely on it, like a yacht racing team, like a soccer team, you know, it's really important. So you know, up front to get all of this working, being able to have, you know, that, that team building time to get to know each other as humans and connect with a bit of empathy mm-hmm. and to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and know how we're going to work to our best advantage so that we can be better than any one of us, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's some, there's some interesting things there. Ted Lasso is fantastic. I highly recommend watching it. Yeah, I haven't listened to him before, so I'm going to go home mm. and give it a go. Um, I know we touched upon it in the first couple of questions around your... You mentioned your leadership style is is relaxed. Does that fall into your project management methodology? How would you define that? Well, there's two things there. One is uh, for a project to be delivered on time, you need a lot of discipline, and that's not about being relaxed at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, from a project management point of view, I've I've got fairly strong views about. <clears throat> how we should be approaching things these days. Mm-hmm. The days of walking into a client and saying, oh, what are your requirements? And writing them down diligently and then building a system that matches those requirements, those days are mm-hmm. gone. You know, that's, that's not the way we do things anymore, particularly around ERP. 
and I guess you know, being the age that I am, I've seen a lot of uh, pendulum swings when it comes to IT. You know, the the IT ruling and then the business teams ruling and so on. And I think the best outcome is you know today we have so much investment and research and development ploughed into um, big off the shelf packages. Yeah. Um, things like SAP, which really are you know, very advanced and can do whatever you need it to do. So why would you start from scratch? Why would you, why would you make yourself special? Um, so uh, the, the fundamental tenet is basically fit gap. Here is the best process for your industry, and I know this works with SAP. Why won't that work for you? And I have, I have had stand-up arguments with clients that say, accounts payable, this is the way we've got to do it. And I say, why? Why are you doing it that way? Well, that's the way we've always done it. Does it make you special? Does it differentiate you in the market? Does it get you more sales? Does it make your customers happy? No. So why do it that way? Torch it and get the standard process because I know that works on SAP. Just all you need to do is change that big, scary C word. Yeah. We had a good example of the same cancer care company. Um, we're very, very uh, willing to adopt standard processes. So we're going through a fit gap process. We've got the accounts receivable process up on the wall. You do this, you do this, you do this, right? If the bills are not paid, you send a dunning letter. And before I could get the words out of my mouth, the room erupted. Everyone yeah. was, no, we're not sending dunning letters. And I thought, what do you mean you're not sending dunning letters? Dunning letters is how you collect debt when it's not paid. You've got to do something. What do you do when the debt's not paid? I said, Cameron, remember, we are in the top 1% for patient care and, and caringness in the world. And the last thing we're going to do is send a dunning letter to a patient's family when they might have just died. And it was like, ah, <laughs> okay, yeah, I get it. I see what you're saying. And so in that case, it was a real good lesson. It was an amazing lesson for me about the client's purpose was very centered around this um, caring, providing high-quality care to their patients. And part of that was that patient experience. So they had a very warm and caring environment for the patient to go through. And look, God forbid any one of us should have ourselves or one of our loved ones go through a cancer journey. But if they did, I would want them to have that caring experience that this company provides. And so part of that caring experience is not sending them a dunning letter when they're in the moment of probably the worst crisis of their lives. And so... That was fair in terms of, all right, your purpose is that special and we need to modify this process to make sure we protect that. So in the end, we ended up routing that dunning letter to the reception of the clinic that they were going to and there could be a human conversation around, do you need help? Are you in financial difficulty? Whatever. And so that's really the core of the, the methodology that I kind of preach is what makes you special? It's not your accounts receivable process, although in this client's case, uh, it probably was. Um, so, you know, what's the core of what makes you special? And take everything that doesn't touch that core and put it to the wall. Use yeah. standard. And that's... So the next next conversation then becomes, oh, well, that means people need to change. Mm. It's like, yeah. <laughs> How else do you get your business benefits? Unless people stop doing A and start doing B, you're not going to get it. And so I get a lot of clients saying to me, oh, yeah, change. My people are change fatigued. They don't want any more change. And I kind of... I get a bit ballsy with them and say, well, if they're change fatigued, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You know, change should be exciting and energizing and, and something to look forward to because you're making their lives better. Mm. You're building a better company, you're giving them more fulfilling work. So if they're change fatigued, it means mm -hmm. you've probably promised them stuff that's not being delivered. They probably don't trust you. That's what you've got to fix. Change, like anything else, can be programmed and executed correctly so that it is energizing and so that people don't get change fatigued. And it's nothing to be afraid of. And in fact, if you boil it down to, okay, you might need to migrate from ECC to S4, 
your people are going to have to change and do things differently. Don't be scared of it. Make sure you plan it in and do it the right way and you'll actually get the business benefits hereafter. So that, that's kind of a, a long-winded way of talking about fit gap analysis, um, using a hybrid, hybrid agile approach. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'd add to that is I love working with clients. Um, it's one of the banks I worked for here, the, the uh, program director role I had where we implemented a CRM system for a banking terminal. And the CEO looked me in the eye and said, Cameron, I don't want this to fail because you didn't ask for enough money. Make sure you've told me everything you need because this has got to go ahead. Often, you know, you've heard the adage, there's never time to do it right, there's only time to do it twice. Mm. You know, and I don't like that. It's like, no, if we're going to do this, let's do it properly. If we need to go and get more money, let's do that. If we need to integrate that system so it works, let's do that. You mm. know? Problems start to arise when companies run out of money, cut corners, need to have shortcuts, don't do it properly, and then guess what? You end up in a mess mm. where you've got people in the bowels of the ship who are having to shovel coal instead of letting the machines do it. And I hate that. So get it right first time. Make sure you budget correctly for it. Do the fit gap analysis. Use a hybrid agile methodology so some things have to be waterfall and then you can yeah. drop into some sprints and so on. So that's... Interesting to hear. And then... Personally, this is always the hardest question for me, but what was your biggest failure? Mm. Learn from it? I was kicking myself over this one um, more because I knew better and I still made the same mistake. And it comes back to the, the, the basics of scope and having a good, solid, clear expectation with the client. And I think, um, you know, if I'm really, if I, if I expose a bit of vulnerability here, I was too keen to make the sale, so I agreed to a few things that I probably shouldn't have, and then they came back to bite us. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really important when you're in a sell and deliver role, as I know a lot of your listeners will be, in terms of, well, I've got to help sell this and then I've got to help deliver it. Yeah. Dancing across that bridge between sales and delivery is really tricky, but at some point, somebody's got to say, no, I'm not, we're not putting this in front of the client until we have these things sorted out because they will absolutely come back to bite you. So this particular project I was on, we delivered it and we did really good work, but we did about three times more hours than we had budgeted for Mm -hmm. um, because the client kept asking for more and asking for more and we kept finding more and more things that, you know, the contract was written not in a way that was tight enough, too many grey areas, and we just kept having to, to keep burning and burning and burning and burning. So ended up with a relatively happy customer and we may end up getting the next phase with them. But it was just a sickening experience for me to feel like I was continuously sliding backwards down the slope. Mm. Every time I replanned, I'd have to replan again. Every time I do a forecast, I'd have to reforecast again. And I just could not stop the burn all the yeah. way down. And so that, that was the, the you know, like I say, kicking myself. I know better than that. I, yeah. <laughs> I've made this mistake before. Yeah. So not making it again. <laughs> so what's the biggest, uh, biggest learning out, out of that? Well, I think it comes down to that... Um, Two things. One is, you know, the obvious one of documenting scope really clearly and taking the time and resisting the pressure of the people in your organisation who are going to be saying, come on, we've got to sign this tomorrow. So, Wait, yeah. <laughs> we, we are not ready to sign this yet. And being brave enough to stand in front of the tank with the shopping bags and saying, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then the second thing is um, being able to spot that coming. So, you know, knowing knowing that you're dancing across the bridge of sales and delivery and having that ability to... Um, see what it's going to be like when, you, when you're the guy or girl trying to deliver this thing and you've got this really grey, woolly contract that doesn't give you any leg to stand on when the client says, I want X, yeah. and you can't say no. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the most devastating part. Sure, okay. Cameron, you, you strike me as someone with a lot of experience um, 
got the battle scars, <laughs> you would have worked with some fantastic people in your in your career as well. Um, who would you say has been the biggest influence on your career? And second to that, what did they teach you? It's a good one. I was thinking about this, and it goes back some way to when I was working for Optus. <clears throat> I was working as uh, the head of IT for Optus Business and Wholesale and working for the CIO. And we had a bit of a project going on, and the CIO kept asking me questions like, you know, has the developer found any bugs? What are they doing? When are they going to fix them? It's like, it's, it's okay. They've got it under control. And he said, no, trust has to be earned. Don't let them pull the wool over your eyes. And I looked at him and thought, you're mad, mate. I don't, I'm not a developer. I can't go down there and figure this out. But he turned out to be right that I was having the wool pulled over my eyes and the person that I had blatantly trusted had not earned my trust. Mm. And so it, it taught me a very good lesson around, yeah, he's right, trust has to be earned. I'm a naturally sort of positive and trusting kind of person, but I've learned to be able to, you know, turn on my, um, my lie detector to a certain point and just say, yeah, can I trust you or not? And sometimes even testing them deliberately to say, all right, I know enough about what you're doing to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Asking a few key questions, you know, right, asking the right probing questions. And if you find softness, keep probing and keep probing. (laughs) If you find some good solid ground, great, okay, I can trust you, you know what you're talking about. Mm. And that's that's helped me out a lot since since those days. Fortunately that happened very early in my career, so it's it's hard not to be trusting and not to believe in the milk of human kindness. But the, not everybody is good at their job. Not everybody is is uh, has the same level of integrity that I would expect. So you do have to, you know, trust has to be earned, and you do need to probe. And it's I think as a as a leader, that's one of the key skills to build is that ability to know what probing question to ask and what answer you're expecting, and to keep going until you get the get to solid ground. Sure, sure. So you may have already answered the the next question. Then um, if you could rewind the clock and mm. you're 21 years old and. Mm-hmm. You know, what would you what would you say to yourself? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good one. So I, I would probably tell my twenty one year old self um, not to doubt your instincts and not to doubt yourself. So self doubt is is a very toxic and terrible place to be. And I've I've gone through some of that recently where I didn't feel like I was very good at my job, and that's that's soul destroying. So always having the ability to trust your instincts, know that the right thing will happen at the right time. Um, and I think I would tell my 21-year-old self, you know, I, I come from reasonably humble beginnings and didn't get a lot of parental support or, uh, or legs up in, in life. And so I didn't really have very big dreams in terms of where I thought I could end up. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I'd tell my 21-year-old self is you can achieve far more than you think you can. You know, have faith and aim high. Mm-hmm. I would never expect to be in this office talking to you. Yeah. you know, if, you, if you'd talk to me when I was 21, that's, that's crazy. You know? yeah. <laughs> May as well be on the story. Yeah. And lastly, I know you've, you've obviously worked with some fantastic people in the past, and you mentioned Bruce McKinnon before, and obviously we've had him on the podcast. But who else would you like to hear from uh, on this podcast? I had the, uh, I have the privilege at the moment of working with uh, Alex Andronacci. Alex, okay. Alex was uh, in Bruce's role at Accenture before Bruce mm, yeah. walked into it, so we managed to do a bit of a switcheroo there. Um, I had the privilege of onboard, or helping to onboard Alex when he came and joined EY twelve months ago. Um, he is a Venezuelan Italian. Um, you're going to need more time in your podcast. You might need to make it an Excel edition because he will talk the leg off on the plot. <laughs> but he is um, hard on his sleeve, genuine guy, full of energy, full of enthusiasm. Um, 
uh, runs his own food truck. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got a really interesting yeah. side gig. Lives in Melbourne, but he's uh, he's great. So he would be a very entertaining guest, I'm sure. Excellent. All right, Camel. Listen, thank you very much for your time today and um, providing your insights. I really appreciate you coming along. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Richard. I've really enjoyed being here with you. Welcome to the Configure It Done podcast. The Configure It Done podcast is a place where successful thought leaders in the SAP space come to share their leadership styles, their tips, and their unique stories on how to run successful large-scale SAP programs. Listen to the podcast to learn from their successes, their failures, their career stories, and their inspirations. This podcast is in partnership with the Black Dog Institute, who aim to create a mentally healthier world for everyone. If you wish to support the cause, please donate via the link below. Welcome, welcome to um, season three of the uh, Configure It Done um, podcast. This is episode one. We're delighted to have Cameron uh, with us today. And uh, I brought my colleague along, Rich, as well. And Rich, just first of all, can you tell the audience who you are, introduce yourself? I know it's the first time you've been on the, on the podcast. Yeah. So my name is Richard Shaw. I've been with Precision now for two years. Came from the UK where I worked in the SAP market across Europe and the US. And I had the privilege to join Precision just prior to lockdown in, in 2019. So it's a little bit about myself. Are you getting on? Are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's a very different market, that's for sure. Okay. All right, good stuff. And then, um, Rich, what I'm going to ask you to do is introduce your guest. I know <coughs> you've um, been talking with Cameron quite a while now. And um, we're going to do a, a quick fire question round. This has been very successful in season two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Cameron, what we're going to do is just set the timer for three minutes. Rich is going to fire some questions at you. And uh, <laughs> if you can answer them as quickly as possible, just so. You can uh, introduce yourself to the audience so Got it. to know you a bit better. All right. Over to you, Rich. Perfect. So, what's your full name? Cameron William Berkman. And what's your nickname? Oh, what God. I like to call you? Uh, Cam, usually, but just don't call me late for dinner, you know. Classic <laughs> dad joke. And whereabouts are you from? Uh, originally born in Brisbane, moved to Sydney in 1990, now living in God's country on Sydney's northern beaches. Perfect. How long have you been here? Oh, I guess you've been in your old life, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's a funny yes. question. <laughs> yeah, that's true. How long have I been aware? <laughs> yeah. And where are you working at the moment? I currently work for EY uh, in the uh, Asia-Pacific Consulting Division, running the SAP go-to-market for Asia-Pacific. Amazing. And what's the best job you say you've ever had? Boy, best job I've ever had? Uh, that's a tough question. Probably uh, as a program director for uh, St. George Bank, where... We ran a project that finished on time and on budget with heaps of support and is still in place today after 15 years. The stuff we built still exists, so that's kind of a nice legacy to leave. And what about your worst job? Um, possibly the one that I've got now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the, in the process of transitioning out. You know, when, you, when you're in a startup mode trying to build a new business from scratch, which is effectively what we're doing with our SAP business after selling our consulting team 10 years ago. Um, it's a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of banging heads against walls, and I've taken the team to a certain point. It's now time for me to move on to something else. But yeah. it's, it's been a little bit frustrating because, you know, growing up is hard for a, an organisation to do. I agree. What about sport? Are you a sport? Yes, I'm a life-saving, surf life-saving. So I compete in the uh, Masters uh, division. Um, 
specialty is probably the swim, the ocean swim. Um, but I do uh, paddle a ski, paddle a board. I try not to run. <laughs> Body's not really suited to running anymore. <laughs> you live in a good part of the world to do that. Exactly right, yeah. And um, what about your favourite beer? Beer or wine, man? Uh, been very focused on craft beer probably too much in the last couple of years. <laughs> um, and there's so much choice. I like a really uh, malty, sort of sweet, not too bitter beer. So some of the stouts that come out, there's a peanut butter stout that is just really? crazy good. Um, you can only drink one or two because they're very heavy and they're very sweet. Um, but the uh, one that I've really liked recently is uh, Nomad Supersonic Rod, which is a um, double dry hopped, very fruity, heavy IPA. Very different from myself. I'm a Heineken or a Carling man. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with a good crisp lager Keep when you're thirsty. Simple. It's all good. <laughs> and what about, uh, what about food? What's your favourite meal? Uh, seafood's good. Um, fresh oysters, um, mm-hmm. shucked on the day, uh, fresh prawns, some nicely grilled barramundi. What about your leadership style? How would you describe it in one word? Um, I uh, relaxed is probably the, the, the right word to do it. I tend to have a lot of trust in people, and we'll, I know we're going to talk about that a bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, building a, a sense where you know we spend a lot of time at work, yeah. it shouldn't just be work. You need to get on with the people that you're with. So, um, you know, we spend a lot of time at work, and uh, it can't all be about work. So, being able to have fun with the people that you're with, which means you know you need to be able to build that culture of of uh, people who like each other and respect each other and get on with the job. So, I'm trying to have a pretty relaxed style. What about are you into films, music? Obviously you play guitar, so yes. Are you into, the, into rock? Uh, oh, my, my taste is pretty wide and eclectic. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you look at some of the playlists of the covers that we play, it's everything from, you know, Sade to, um, ah, Lenny Kravitz, Rolling Stones, yeah. you know, it's all over the shop. I'm a big James Bond fan. Can't wait for the next James Bond film I'll to come out. on Thursday. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. good work. Yeah. We're, uh, we're going to have a... so long. Yes. It was meant to come out, was it, the November of the first? Last month, November, delayed, yeah. Delayed, delayed, delayed. There's rumours you're the next Bond, Rich. Uh, I can see that. I've done two Norwegians to be the next Bond. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a Welsh Bond. <laughs> that could work. Um, what about holidays? We had a quick chat before, but where's your favourite place to go? Um, I, uh, I really like Italy. And we spent some some fantastic time on the west coast of Italy, around the Amalfi yeah. Coast. That was probably one of our favourite holidays. I'll send you some uh, holiday destinations in Wales. Oh uh, yes, I'd love to visit next Wales. Time you go. Yeah, exactly. And a bucket list, anyway. Anything you want to do? I was asked the same question the other day, and I couldn't answer. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I said go to Japan. I'd like to go skiing in Japan. Yeah, that's not a bad one. I think it, the whole concept of a bucket list is like, why wait? Let's let's yeah. do it now. You know. So there's, I keep trying to, like, you know, I wanted to. Play in front of a live audience, good, done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would love to go snowboarding in Japan. That'd be, that'd yeah, be yeah. fun. Um, would love to ride a motorcycle across the United States. So. Also be cool. Favourite city? I really like Tokyo. Yeah. So I had, had opportunity to go there a few times before <clears throat> the whole pandemic started. And uh, it's a great city. It's really... You know, eclectic yeah, eclectic and great food. Really go. yeah, mm. I've never been as well, but everyone keeps saying how good yeah. that place mm. is. So I love the food. People yeah. seem so nice. Yeah. The country looks beautiful. It's just got so much to offer. Well, the other thing I like about Tokyo is um, you know, I'm relatively tall and I don't look at all Japanese, and I've never felt more alien in a place. You, know, you travel through Europe, you kind of figure things out, but I remember standing in front of a subway sign in Tokyo going, 
I have no idea where I am or how to get to where I need to go and this doesn't make any sense, could not figure it out. Yeah. That's kind of my test for <clears throat> travelling anywhere is being able to use the public transport system. Yeah. Tokyo completely stumped me. <laughs> so I, com- I was such an alien there. So that was good. It was nice and refreshing to be somewhere very different like that. Yeah, for sure. I will go one day. And um, if you weren't an SEP, where do you think you'd be? Oh, managing a rock band, uh, tour manager, something like that. <laughs> Teaching people how to sail. Oh, there's right. lots of lots of fun things to do. Yeah. And um, a fun fact about yourself? Uh, I've just bought a farm. Really? Yeah, down near Berry. We're going to set it up as a wedding venue and possibly a craft brewery years okay. into the future. But yeah, it's it's, it's going to be really fun. It's opened up a whole new dimension of what might our future look like instead of just grinding away for a while in Sydney. I love Barry. It's, it's a great spot. A friend of ours Barry got Pruden. married um, down there. They've yep. got that famous donut. Um, oh, yes. Down there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, great spot, Barry. Really good. All right, brilliant. Well, um, thanks, Rich, for doing the uh, fun facting about uh, Cameron there. I want to dive into your career now, um, Cameron. First Please. of all, before we do that, can you tell us... Um, about how you got into SAP initially? Yeah, I was working for IBM and realised that I needed a change. <clears throat> and at the time, uh, Bruce McKinnon and Scott Russell were both working there. Scott's now the global head of customer success for SAP and Bruce is now the head of SAP over at Accenture. Yeah, we've had him on the podcast, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was working, used to work with Bruce with both of them at, at, um, at IBM. And so when I was looking for a change, they'd both left reached out to Bruce and he said, well, why don't you come and, and work for us as a client partner selling SAP services? And at that time in my career, I'd been working for IBM doing a sell and deliver role and felt I needed more hardcore sales experience. And so I thought, here's an opportunity to go and work for a, you know, in a pure sales role for SAP. Uh, and I certainly got my wish because being a client partner for SAP was probably the hardest job I've ever had. Um, it's uh, it's a really difficult role to play, and I learned I learned a lot. Yeah, but it was definitely the school of hard knocks. Mm-hmm. Lots of um, lots of very frustrating and stressful times there, but some good work too. You know, for some big clients. That's where I met Stephen Wales. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another another podcast guest as yes. well. It's a very small <laughs> ecosystem, isn't it? Yeah, that's the, right. The SAP yeah. space. Um, I've asked the same question to Bruce. I asked the same question to Steve as well about you know what keeps them mm. in the in the SAP domain. Uh, I know Bruce now is leading a team of 500, mm. um, for instance. So um, yeah, it's just it's incredible. Um, but what what keeps you in the in the SAP domain? I guess um, if I'm blunt, it's the biggest game in town. So there is always going to be SAP work. Um, they obviously 80% of the world's transactions touch an SAP system at some point. And so uh, having had you know, 11, 12 years experience in SAP, it makes sense for me to continue my career in that space because it's a great source of, of satisfaction. The other part of it, of course, is the, the fact that it's got real potential to make a difference. So you can look at the uh, move to S4 HANA in two ways. One as a cynical way for a software company to make more money. The other is actually as a genuine attempt to rewrite the software in a way that's going to make a significant difference. And so um, having been at SAP, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, I get it, you know, in terms of, yeah, this can actually make a massive change for a lot of companies. Mm. Um, the ability to have it all in memory, to have everything in one database, to have a single um, 
Universal Journal record, that's, you know, when you dig into what S4 is, it's actually really amazing. It does what it says on the tin. And so being a bit of an evangelist and trying to bring that to my clients and showing them this is what your business could look like, you know, this is how things could work for you. The hardest part is overcoming that disbelief of, no, that'll never work for me, you know. So mm-hmm. so there's huge potential there. Um, and in terms of my personal mission uh, to try and build a better world, a better working world, um, then, you know, there's, there's a great tool there. So I want to pick it up and use it. Sure, sure. And I suppose being part of that better world, like you said, um, I would put this question to Bruce and it was about um, encouraging new talent in the, in the market. Mm. So mm. in Australia, we're, we're really struggling to encourage you know, new talent to come mm. through. Like we said, it's a small ecosystem. It's the same names that have been in the, the SAP game for, for years. Um, in your opinion, Cameron, how do we encourage new talent to come through and, and how do we keep SAP relevant in, mm. the, in the market today? Because it has been around for a long, long time. Yeah, I think uh, SAP is doing good, a good job at refreshing their or obviously refreshing their underlying technology reinventing themselves into a cloud company mm. <clears throat> uh, rebuilding the software from the ground up so I think the attraction for for um, young entrants to the market is um, you know the skills that you learn at university can be very applicable in this new world so um, once SAP gets off you know gets unhooked from its drug of on-premise software and perpetual maintenance and more into the subscription revenue model, suddenly SAP is going to find we need to actually make sure our customers are satisfied and that's going to take a whole different mindset. So Mm -hmm. the new crop of talent coming through out of our universities um, and across industry coming in from outside should be looking at that as an opportunity to say, all right, we need to not only keep make this customer happy, but keep them happy. And so that's a very different uh, model from the old subscription and, and maintenance game that they've been playing. Um, the potential to um, use low-code, no-code tools to be able to solve business problems using business technology platform, et cetera, opens up a huge plethora of opportunities for people from uh, implementing core, configuring, um, change management, training, data migration, uh, you know, if you if you think about the fact that something like four and a half thousand customers in Asia Pacific have yet to move, that's four and a half thousand really big multi-year programs that have yet to run. There's tons of work, um, and every one of those needs configuration, thinking about the operating model, data migration, training, change management. You know, the world is massive from that point of view. So there's no shortage of of work to do, and it's good work that will hopefully build a better working world. You mentioned there four and a half thousand um, different programs there, but thinking about one specific program and, and your you know, methodology, what would you define as a, a successful SAP program? We, um, we had the pleasure of working with a, an Australian company that provides cancer and heart care, and their purpose was to save a million years of life. It's sometimes hard for me to tell these stories without getting a lump in my throat, right? Because the, the things that they were doing is just miraculous, helping people um, get to the point where they can spend their, their last days with their loved ones in, in comfort rather than in pain and so on. So they had uh, a situation where they wanted to expand and grow their um, EBITDA five times over the next, sorry, double their EBITDA over five years. But their current engine, which was a not, not an SAP package, was basically spitting smoke and flames and was about to explode at any minute. And the, the symptom of this was their um, 
finance team had massive attrition. They were losing people every month because the work was too hard, systems didn't talk to each other, they were back till midnight for two weeks after month end to try and get the books closed and so on. Clearly this is not functional. And so when the CEO looked at it and said, come on, we're going to double the business, everyone said, no, we're not. <laughs> we're not going to do that. So you know, we had a, an opportunity to exercise what I think is the right way to approach it, which is, okay, firstly, let's sort out your operating model and the way you do things and get your business ready for the software. And fortunately, they allowed us to do that. Mm-hmm. We handed them a new operating model. We went through a fit gap process. We got them down to seven RICEFs in the end, which is just a ridiculously low number, which meant that they were, which meant that they were very... Um, standard in the way that they were adopting the software and not adapting it for their needs. Mm -hmm. So um, we did it the right way, what I consider to be the right way, get the business ready for the software, rebuild the operating model, choose the right software, and then we put them straight onto a nice clean copy of S4. Um, All of it was on time, on budget, um, and realised tremendous benefits for them. Um, In in odd areas, um, they had no uh, approval to purchase system that had an approval to pay system so all of their clinics 84 clinics were out there buying stuff no one had any idea what it was or who it was from they had no centralized way to to organize procurement they had 84 different contracts with the same uniform supplier you know so i I look at things like this i get frustrated you know i think this is this is crazy right you've got to you've got to do better than this so a lot of it was justified purely on being able to centralize all that purchasing in one place and then having a you know, what, what we would normally consider to be a classic um, purchase acquisition, purchase order, um, goods receipt note, invoice, four-way match, done. They didn't have any of that. So, you know, I remember we submitted one of our bills to them. They've gone, we didn't know this was coming. We're going to have to go to the bank and borrow some money to pay you because we had no idea this was coming. That's how bad their systems were. Mm-hmm. So being able to help them um, sort all that out move into what I would call the 20th century and then be able to expand their business. They've now gone on this massive um, expansion plan. They've actually relocated their headquarters to the US. They've achieved their aim of doubling their EBITDA in five years and we enabled that. So that was very cool. It was very cool to be able to to do that. That is success. So Cameron, what are the top three imperatives you took within your team when you were delivering the project? Yeah, I think that's... um, that's a really good question, and it's. I was thinking about this question as I came in today. Uh, it's a bit like a, you know, whenever we do a project, particularly as a professional services organisation, it's a little bit like I don't know, Big Brother or something like that. We grab a bunch of random people and throw them in a room, and hopefully you get a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And so, very rarely do we handpick teams, do we interview people. It's more like who's available, who's got the right skills, right go. And so, as a project leader, your first job is to set the culture, build the team, create the environment, you know, which many um, sort of non-professional services companies like, like you know, you guys, yeah. you have a set culture here. It's, it doesn't, doesn't change very much. You've got new people who come in and out. But every time we run a project, it's, it's starting from scratch every yeah. time. So I thought about three things. One is um, thinking about all the really good teams that I've been part of. One, one thing that I think is really valuable, it's going to sound weird, is intimidation. If I feel like I'm working with people smarter than me that I'm a bit scared of, that's great. You know, so I had this experience recently on one of my projects where there was a, a um, lady, um, 
in Melbourne who was same rank as me, and we both had you know sort of a two in a box kind of model, and she was amazing. She frightened the life out of me because I thought <laughs> she's so much better at this than I am. But that was great because it kept me on my toes, yeah. um, and she was really lovely, and we just got on so well. But having that little bit of intimidation, I think you, you don't want to be the smartest guy in the room with your team, right? Yeah, that's interesting you say that. When we had um, Alex Aiken on the first episode of season one. That was the first thing he said as mm. well. He said, if he's the smartest guy in the room, that project's in trouble. Yes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a very good point. Yeah, so I, I think that's really important. Steve Bingham says the same thing. Our, our APAC leader for technology, he's I asked him once, he and I actually started our careers together uh, back at PreWC, and he's rocketed to tremendous heights, and I haven't, which doesn't necessarily mean I'm a failure, by the way. <laughs> so I said to Steve, what, what's the secret to your success? And he said, I always hire people smarter than me. And so I think that's really important to have that that sense of there are some really brainy people here and, mm. and being a little bit intimidated by that, which is good. The second thing is... Um, what I would call the soft, hard stuff. So a team of people that knows, okay, we're a team. We have to do things that make us feel like a team, even if it feels a bit hokey sometimes. So let's do Friday afternoon drinks. Let's do our quiz night. Let's do... So it's that conscious, consciously being fun and caring about each other. And again, when you're just chucking people in a room and getting a project going from day one, it's it takes conscious effort to do that. You can't just expect someone to stand up and go, oh... Why don't I organise something fine? You actually have to plan it. And so in the first couple of weeks, it feels a bit kind of weird and a bit kind of forced, but then you get into it, right? So I think it's really important that you have people who uh, have, the, have the emotional intelligence to recognise we're going to need to do this. You know, We have to consciously care about each other and consciously have some fun because, as I said before, you know, majority of our waking hours are work hours. If you can't enjoy what you do, it's not going to be very good. So we had a situation on a project recently where our um, program manager, the person that I was working for, collapsed at work on client site and had to be taken to hospital. Turned out to be uh, stress and exercising too hard and, and not eating right and all that sort of stuff. But it really put a big well-being theme into the team saying, hang on a sec, we're not, something's wrong. You know, if people on this team are falling over, <laughs> we're not doing something right. So we made sure that everybody had access to well-being resources. We made sure they knew that actually your health is more important than delivering this project. And that actually brought us together. Um, and that, that program manager came back and she was fantastic and really appreciated. Actually went on a 12-week wellness program and then came back and gave us a presentation about all the stuff she learned. So it was really, really important. And I think the third thing is um, is what I would call the upward spiral. So... I'm watching Ted Lasso at the moment, and so you know, being from Wales, uh, there's some funny jokes about Wales and Welsh independence recently, which is good. Um, yeah, but this, this, I think there's going to be management textbooks written about Ted Lasso and the Lasso effect. But his primary aim is a couple of things. One is self-belief. You know, we're a team and we can do this. And fairly basic stuff around play to your strengths, but also play to everybody else's strengths, which kind of means a you need to know you. And B, you need to know what everybody else is good at. So when do I make the pass? When do I do it myself? You know, when can I rely on you to do something? When should I step back and be selfless and let you have it? You know, mm-hmm. um, and you know the, the episode I watched last night. Uh, one of the players, Jamie Tart, he's a bit uh, thorny. They use a different word in the show, but that that um, that hard man, that that ability to be really really annoying is actually one of his strengths and so they unleashed it at the right point won the game so yes it's fictional and so on but Mm -hmm. that ability to know what everybody's strengths are and to rely on it like a yacht racing team like a soccer team you know it's really important so you know up front 
to get all of this working, being able to have you know that that team building time to get to know each other as humans and connect with a bit of empathy and to understand each other's strengths and weaknesses and know how we're going to work to our best advantage so that we can be better than any one of us. You know? mm-hmm. So there's some, there's some interesting things there. Ted Lasso is fantastic. I highly recommend watching it. Yeah, I haven't listened to him before, so I'm going to go home mm. and give it a go. Um, I know we touched upon it in the first couple of questions around your, you mentioned your leadership style is, is relaxed. Does that fall into your project management methodology? How would you define that? Well, there's two things there. One is a, 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 for a project to be delivered on time, you need a lot of discipline, and that's not about being relaxed at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, from a project management point of view, I've, I've got fairly strong views about how we should be approaching things these days. Mm-hmm. The days of walking into a client and saying, oh, what are your requirements, and writing them down diligently and then building a system that matches those requirements, those days are mm-hmm. gone. You know, that's, that's not the way we do things anymore, particularly around ERP. And I guess, you know, being the age that I am, I've seen a lot of uh, pendulum swings when it comes to IT, you know, the the IT ruling and then the business teams ruling and so on. And I think the best outcome is, you know, today we have so much investment and research development ploughed into um, big off-the-shelf packages, Um, things like SAP, which really are, you know, very advanced and can do whatever you need it to do. So why would you start from scratch? Why would you why would you make yourself special? Um, so uh, the the fundamental tenet is basically fit gap. Here is the best process for your industry, and I know this works with SAP. Why won't that work for you? Mm-hmm. And I have I have had stand up arguments with clients that say accounts payable. This is the way we've got to do it. And I say why? Why are you doing it that way? Well, mm-hmm. that's the way we've always done it. Does it make you special? Does it differentiate you in the market? Does it get you more sales? Does it make your customers happy? No. So why do it that way? Torch it and get the standard process because I know that works on SAP. Just all you need to do is change that big scary C word. Yeah. We're a good example of the same cancer care company. Um, we're very, very uh, willing to adopt standard processes. So we're going through a fit gap process. We've got the accounts receivable process up on the wall. You do this, you do this, you do this, right? If the bills are not paid, you send a dunning letter. And before I could get the words out of my mouth, the room erupted. Everyone yeah. was, no, we're not sending dunning letters. And I thought, what do you mean you're not sending dunning letters? Dunning letters is how you collect debt when it's not paid. You've got to do something. What do you do when the debt's not paid? And I said, Cameron, remember, we are in the top 1% for patient care and, and caringness in the world. And the last thing we're going to do is send a dunning letter to a patient's family when they might have just died. And it was like... Ah, <laughs> okay, yeah, I get it. I see what you're saying. And so in that case, it was a real good lesson. It was an amazing lesson for me about the client's purpose was very centered around this um, caring, providing high-quality care to their patients. And part of that was that patient experience. So they had a very warm and caring environment for the patient to go through. And look, God forbid any one of us should have ourselves or one of our loved ones go through a cancer journey. But if they did, I would want them to have that caring experience that this company provides. And so part of that caring experience is not sending them a dunning letter when they're in the moment of probably the worst crisis of their lives. And so... That was fair in terms of, all right, your purpose is that special and we need to modify this process to make sure we protect that. So in the end, we ended up routing that dunning letter to the reception of the clinic that they were going to and there could be a human conversation around, do you need help? Are you in financial difficulty? Whatever. And so that's really the core of the the methodology that I kind of preach is what makes you special? It's not your accounts receivable process, although in this client's case, uh, it probably was. Um, 
So, you know, what's the core of what makes you special? And take everything that doesn't touch that core and put it to the wall. Use yeah. standard. And that's – so the next next conversation then becomes, oh, well, that means people need to change. Mm. It's like, yeah. <laughs> How else do you get your business benefits? Unless people stop doing A and start doing B, you're not going to get it. And so I get a lot of clients saying to me, oh, yeah, change. My people are change fatigued. They don't want any more change. And I kind of – I get a bit ballsy with them and say, well, if they're change fatigued, you're doing it wrong. You know, change should be exciting and energizing and and something to look forward to because you're making their lives better. You're building a better company, giving them more fulfilling work. So if they're change fatigued, it means you've probably promised them stuff that's not being delivered. They probably don't trust you. That's what you've got to fix. Change, like anything else, can be programmed and executed correctly so that it is energizing and so that people don't get change fatigued. And it's nothing to be afraid of. And in fact, if you boil it down to, okay, you might need to migrate from ECC to S4, your people are going to have to change and do things differently. Don't be scared of it. Make sure you plan it in and do it the right way and you'll actually get the business benefits you're after. So that, that's kind of a, a long-winded way of talking about fit gap analysis, um, using a hybrid, hybrid agile approach. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'd add to that is I love working with clients. Um, it's one of the banks I worked for here, the, the uh, program director role I had where we implemented a CRM system for a banking terminal. And the CEO looked me in the eye and said, Cameron, I don't want this to fail because you didn't ask for enough money. Make sure you've told me everything you need because this has got to go ahead. Often, you know, you've heard the adage, there's never time to do it right, there's only time to do it twice. Mm. You know, and I don't like that. It's like, no, if we're going to do this, let's do it properly. If we need to go and get more money, let's do that. If we need to integrate that system so it works, let's do that, you Mm -hmm. know. Problems start to arise when companies run out of money, cut corners, need to have shortcuts, don't do it properly, and then guess what? You end up in a mess where you've got people in the bowels of the ship who are having to shovel coal instead of letting the machines do it. And I hate that. So get it right first time. Make sure you budget correctly for it. Do the fit gap analysis. Use a hybrid agile methodology so some things have to be waterfall and then you can drop into some sprints and so on. So that's... Interesting to hear. And then... Personally, this is always the hardest question for me, but what was your biggest failure? What did you learn from it? I was kicking myself over this one um, more because I knew better and I still made the same mistake. And it comes back to the, the, the basics of scope and having a good, solid, clear expectation with the client. And I think, um, you know, if I'm really, if I, if I expose a bit of vulnerability here, I was too keen to make the sale, so I agreed to a few things that I probably shouldn't have, and then they came back to bite us. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really important when you're in a sell and deliver role, as I know a lot of your listeners will be, in terms of, well, I've got to help sell this and then I've got to help deliver it. Yeah. Dancing across that bridge between sales and delivery is really tricky, but at some point somebody's got to say, no, I'm not. we're not putting this in front of the client until we have these things sorted out because they will absolutely come back to bite you. Yeah. So this particular project I was on, we delivered it and we did really good work, but we did about three times more hours than we had budgeted for Mm -hmm. um, because the client kept asking for more and asking for more and we kept finding more and more things that, you know, the contract was written not in a way that was tight enough, too many grey areas, and we just kept having to to keep burning and burning and burning and burning. So ended up with a relatively happy customer and we may end up getting the next phase with them. But it was just a sickening experience for me to feel like I was continuously sliding backwards down the slope. Mm. Every time I replanned, I'd have to replan again. Every time I do a forecast, I'd have to reforecast again. And I just could not stop the burn all the way yeah. down. 
and so that that was the, the you know, like I say, kicking myself. I know better than that. I, <laughs> I've, I've made this mistake before, so not making it again. <laughs> so, what's the biggest uh, biggest learning out out of that? I think yeah, it comes down to that. Um, two things. One is you know the obvious one of documenting scope really clearly and taking the time and resisting the pressure of the people in your organisation who are going to be saying, come on, we've got to sign this tomorrow. So wait, yeah. <laughs> we, we are not ready to sign this yet. And being brave enough to stand in front of the tank with the shopping bags and saying, we're not doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then the second thing is um, being able to spot that coming. So, you know, knowing, knowing that you're dancing across the bridge of sales and delivery and having that ability to um, see what it's going to be like when, you, when you're the guy girl trying to deliver this thing and you've got this really grey woolly contract that doesn't give you any leg to stand on when the client says I want X and you can't say no you know that's that's the that's the most devastating part sure okay Cameron you you strike me as someone with a lot of experience Um, you've got the battle scars you would have worked with some fantastic people in your in your career as well Um, who would you say has been the biggest influence on your career and Second to that, what did they teach you? It's a good one. I was thinking about this, and it goes back some way to when I was working for Optus. <clears throat> I was working as uh, the head of IT for Optus Business and Wholesale and working for the CIO. And we had a bit of a project going on, and the CIO kept asking me questions like, you know, has the developer found any bugs? What are they doing? When are they going to fix them? It's like, it's, it's okay. They've got it under control. And he said, no. Trust has to be earned. Don't let them pull the wool over your eyes. And I looked at him and thought, you're mad, mate. I don't, I'm not a developer. I can't go down there and figure this out. But he turned out to be right, that I was having the wool pulled over my eyes. And the person that I had blatantly trusted had not earned my trust. And so it, it taught me a very good lesson around, yeah, he's right. Trust has to be earned. I'm a naturally sort of positive and trusting kind of person. But I've learned to be able to, you know, turn on my... Um, my lie detector to a certain point and just say, yeah, can I trust you or not? And sometimes even testing them deliberately to say, all right, I know enough about what you're doing to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Asking a few key questions, you know, right, asking the right probing questions. And if you find softness, keep probing and keep probing. Right, yeah. If you find some good solid ground, great. Okay, I can trust you. You know what you're talking about. Mm. And that's that's helped me out a lot since, since those days. Fortunately, that happened very early in my career. So... It's, it's hard not to be trusting and not to believe in the milk of human kindness, sure. but the, not everybody is good at their job. Not everybody is, is, uh, has the same level of integrity that I would expect. So you do have to, you know, trust has to be earned and you do need to probe. And it's, I think as a, as a leader, that's one of the key skills to build is that ability to know what probing question to ask and what answer you're expecting and to keep going until you get, the, get to solid ground. Sure, sure. So you may have already answered the, the next question then. Um, if you could rewind the clock and mm. you're 21 years old, and mm-hmm. you know, what would you what would you say to yourself? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good one. So I, I would probably tell my 21 year old self um, not to doubt your instincts and not to doubt yourself. So self doubt is is a very toxic and terrible place to be, and I've I've gone through some of that recently where I didn't feel like I was very good at my job, and that's mm. that's soul destroying. So always having the ability to trust your instincts know that the right thing will happen at the right time um and i think i would tell my 21 year old self you know i I come from reasonably humble beginnings 
and didn't get a lot of parental support or uh, or legs up in in life and so I didn't really have very big dreams in terms of where I thought I could end up. Mm. So the other thing I tell my 21 year old self is you can achieve far more than you think you can. You know, have faith and aim high. Mm. I would never expect to be in this office talking to you, yeah. you know, if you if you talked to me when I was 21. That's that's crazy. You know, yeah. <laughs> may sure as well be on the story. Way. Yeah. And lastly, I know you've, you've obviously worked with some fantastic people in the past, and you mentioned Bruce McKinnon before, and obviously we've had him on the podcast. But who else would you like to hear from uh, on this podcast? I had the, uh, I have the privilege at the moment of working with uh, Alex Andronacci. Alex, okay. Alex was uh, in Bruce's role at Accenture before Bruce mm, walked yeah. into it, so we managed to do a bit of a switcheroo there. Um, I had the privilege of onboard, or helping to onboard Alex when he came and joined EY twelve months ago. Um, he is a Venezuelan Italian. Um, you're going to need more time in your podcast. You might need to make it an Excel edition because he will talk the leg off on the plot. But he is um, hard on his sleeve, genuine guy, full of energy, full of enthusiasm. Um, uh, runs his own food truck. <laughs> so he's got a really interesting side gig. Lives in Melbourne, but he's uh, he's great. So he would be a very entertaining guest, I'm sure. Excellent. All right, Camel, listen, thank you very much for your time today and um, providing your insights. I really appreciate you coming along. It's been a pleasure. Fantastic. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Richard. I've really enjoyed being here with you.